Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics at Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University. We're here today for part two of a very stimulating conversation with my good friend, uh, Dr. Brent Waters. Uh, Brent is a Stead Professor of Christian Ethics at Garrett Evangelical Seminary in Evanston, Illinois, and the director of the Stead Center for Ethics and Values at that same institution. We're here talking about his, his recently released book, Just Capitalism. Uh, it's it's a, di- sort of a different foray, Brent, for you from bioethics into more uh, the intersection of theology and economics, uh, but I think a very profitable foray. We left off last time by your, the big idea of the book is that market exchange is a necessary but not sufficient condition for full human flourishing. Uh, and we got to the necessary part, barely got to the sufficient part, so I want to focus a little bit more on that. But to summarize, uh, say a little bit about the, just the, the general value of market exchange and how you communicate that to your students. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, the basic value of market exchange is that it helps us to simply more than survive and to flourish because, as, as Adam Smith recognized, we all have to be specialized. Otherwise, if we try to do everything on our own, our lives are going to be per- fairly miserable. Another way to say it is if you, if you really want to live well, get other people to do your work. So um, <laughs> how I do this with my students is I, I ask them, um, I, I say, first of all, well, market exchange that does nothing else destroys the fiction of autonomy. Uh, and they kind of look at me quizzically. So I suspect I, some of our listeners might have that same puzzled look on their face. Well, they might. So, so the listeners, too, you can play in this exercise. Um, how many of you woke up this morning in the building that you built? Well, usually I don't see any hands go up in my classroom. No, no log cabins among your students? No, not yet. Uh, how many of you made your clothes that you're wearing now? Occasionally a hand will go up and I say, so did you actually grow the cotton and harvest it? And, and make it ready. Well, no. Okay. How many of you ate the food that you either grew or, or butchered this morning? And occasionally, hand will go up and I'll say, "Did you make the seeds?" No. No. Okay. How many of you built the automobile that you drove to campus today? And and, and you can go down the list. And after it's all done, you, you realize there's actually very little you do for your own well-being. You're completely dependent upon others, but you need some kind of means, and that's exchange. So rather than bartering. Uh, goods and services, now we use money as the form of exchange. So that's all I try to really say is that, and, and without that, uh, probably we couldn't survive for very long. So you, you do need that. Yeah, so it makes sense that, you know, for most of the history of civilization that we lived in subsistence level right. poverty, it was everybody trying to do everything for themselves. Right. I mean, you, you, know, you provided all your own mm-hmm. goods off, off the land. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I find it ironic that uh, the groups that sort of romanticize that period of time are also the ones carrying the most sophisticated technological apparatuses. Right. And right. so it makes, sort of makes me wonder, do, do you really want to go back to the day where we had face-to-face exchange mm-hmm. for everything that we need? Right. Um, no, I mean, it's look, it's uh, uh, our time has been really expended by being able to simply do a couple of clicks. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, and I, you know, I, maybe I'm two and a half cheers for Amazon. Uh, you know, maybe not everything. Right. But, uh, you know, I'm delighted mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, I, I can I can buy your books for a fraction of the cost on my Kindle. Now, don't yell at me because I know you don't get the same amount of royalties 
Uh, so don't yell at me that I'm cheating you out of your royalties. I, actually, what's iron, ironic is you can actually buy a casket on Amazon. <laughs> and what was a little off-putting one time was only used once. And, <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> well, I think some, some people will find a way to sell just about anything. Yeah. Uh, so let's let's go. We, so we said that markets, market exchange, mm -hmm. is a really good thing, mm -hmm. um, and that if we didn't have that, our lives would look, our lives would be unrecognizable today, if we didn't have that. But it's not enough. It's not. It's not enough to have all of the goods and services materially that we need. Although we recognize, you know, the the body matters. Uh, and that's why that's why the flourishing of the body and the community matters. Uh, why theologically, how do you know that the body matters? Because there's we have a long pietistic tradition that says it doesn't. Well, we have this doctrine called the incarnation, and it's, it's kind why, of. A, why do I think I'm going to get a profound grasp of the obvious here? <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's kind of an important doctrine. Um, in fact, I think without the incarnation, you don't have Christianity. You have Gnosticism. And what the Incarnation says is, is God, uh, or that the Word became flesh and was pleased to dwell among us. God becomes a human creature. That's an extraordinary claim. And I think in that is the affirmation that embodiment is good. That it is good to be embodied. There's the affirmation even that finitude and mortality are good. So with that affirmation, it's not good to despise what God loves. And if God was pleased to become this, this human creature, die uh, for our sins, then it's probably good that we don't despise our bodies either. If you're going to tend to, to the body, you have to tend to material well-being. It just goes, it's part of the package deal. You can't simply neglect the body, I think, and expect you're a faithful Christian. Uh, bodies matter. And even our language, I mean, the church is the body of Christ on earth. When we, when we take the Eucharist, we, it's the body broken. Uh, for us. Uh, so body language is, is thoroughly part of, of, of Christianity and every time we've been tempted by a heresy to deny the goodness of the body, we've had the good sense to reject it. And the body will still matter in eternity? I think so. I, I mean, I, I do believe in the bodily resurrection. Um, and and if, you know, if, if God doesn't despise bodies, I think it has something, some role to play in, in, in eternity. Uh, now, don't ask me the details. I'm not a systematic theologian. I have no idea what what a spiritual body is that Paul refers to. But I take it on faith that uh, I'm not going to survive merely as a specter or a ghost. Well, that, I mean, it's clear that after the resurrection, yeah. Jesus had a body, though it right. was of a different sort. Yes, but, but recognizable. Um, but yes, for, for what it was. Yeah. Um, I mean, my seminary mentor used to say, there is just as much hope in the scripture for your body as there is for your soul. Um, and I th and that I think both, so it you know but, but both that that get the incarnation and when the eternal state comes the, the body matters it does yeah. uh, so I, I love the way you put that that's so helpful I think that that we we ought not despise what God found pleasing uh, and so this is why I miss mean, why economics matters mm -hmm. uh, I've I found I found it so interesting. Um, that you know, we've had sometimes we have we have students who, when we try to introduce this conversation, will say, "How does this matter to my soul? How does how does economics matter to my spiritual life? Just to the day to day stuff of of what I'm involved in?" 
So, how, I mean, how would you respond to a student who's, who, I think, who's gen genuinely trying to figure this out, uh, but they've just been raised in that pietistic tradition right, right. where it's only the things that, that serve the soul right. matter? Well, you don't even have to be raised in the pietistic tradition. Uh, I mean, I think there's always been, through at least the last 40, 50 years of seminary training, a disparagement of, of materialism. Now, materialism is a bad thing, but material well-being is not. So to go back to my own seminary training, um, what were the two most valuable lessons I learned as a, as a minister early on? Well, uh, I was a campus minister and a small operation. The, uh, the volunteer here who was in charge of the finances started referring to the ledger, and I said, the what? <laughs> and he literally took you me were, You were not an accounting major. No. But he literally took me through and saying, this is how you make an entry. This is an output. This is an input. This is why it's important that these two numbers match. Okay. And it was extraordinarily helpful because, you know, I was responsible for the, for the you know, financial uh, mm -hmm. ministry of that, uh, of that campus ministry. And secondly, <laughs> the most valuable lesson I learned was catering. You choose your caterers well when you have an event because that's part of hospitality. It's not just a secondary kind of thing, but I never learned any of this in seminary. Now, a little more seriously, what we're learning now is that people are, are getting into a world of hurt. And what I mean by that is our seminaries received a grant from the Lilly Foundation to improve the financial literacy of ministers. Because they, a lot of them are way overextended in their debt. They're not doing a very good job in their own personal finances. And that tends to overflow into them the financial management of, of the churches. And what I want to impress upon students is saying, look, in my day, we called this donkey work. But it's not donkey work. It's actually very critical to your ministry because if you, if you care about your people, you will care about the finances that they have entrusted to you through their tithes and offerings to spend it well and to budget it well and to make sure that uh, to the best of your ability it's used for, for the purposes to which it was given. And it's really central to your ministry, not, not peripheral. It's not donkey work. So, so we've, we value the, the daily work of our people. Mm -hmm. And the people who we serve in our churches. Right. Now, we rightly value that as part of their vocation, just mm -hmm. as a, another arena of service to which God's calling them to be faithful. Right. Um, and we affirm, you know, just plain old ordinary work, mm -hmm. which is what most of us are engaged in most of the time. Right. Um, but we recognize that, that that's not, that's, that's a big part of our lives, but it's not our identity, and it's not, it's not the full story of what's going what's to enable us to flourish as a human being. So let, let's spell out a little bit more of the, the not sufficient right. part uh, that, you, that you tease out in your book. Uh, what, what else is necessary yeah. for, beyond, beyond material well-being for, for people to flourish? And I think the, even framing the question like that is so different for, for many of us in the tradition that we were raised in, because we never assumed that material well-being had anything to do with our right. flourishing. Right. Uh, we know the interesting thing about this is that it's, it's stuff that's pretty ordinary and you just overlook it. I mean, I, I've, I've been, I forget where C.S. Lewis wrote it, but he's saying, what's really important in life? Well, it's probably sitting on the couch with your wife at night, having a, a darts game. You know, and kind of things, and it's and it's this this ordinary kinds of things. But actually, you've provided me an opportunity to plug a new book I'm working on. It's um it's called Common Callings and Ordinary Virtues and Praise of the Mundane, 
And in many respects, it's a follow-up to what I'm doing on this, mm -hmm. saying that it's, it's in the common, ordinary part of life that we learn what's most important. I mean, because for two reasons. It's formative. We, we develop good habits, things like that. I mean, I, I, you know, you discover things like, if you don't wash the dishes, no one else is. You know, and, and there's nothing interesting about washing the dishes, but it's terribly important to keeping an orderly household. And people, I think, thrive in, in an orderly household rather than a disorderly one. But you have all these ordinary relationships, too, spouses, friends, even strangers. Um, and it's the other part of the importance is they sometimes can be iconic. You catch a glimpse into what is most genuinely important. So in the new book I'm working on, I write, I think we'll be surprised what's commended on the Day of Judgment and what's condemned. Because I said, my hunch is God's not terribly interested in who you voted for in 2016. But God may say, why didn't you do the dishes for your tired wife that night, even though it was her turn? Because, I mean, these are the, the simple acts of kindness and things like this, I think, are, are terribly important to what it means to be a human being who's in, in love and fellowship with other human beings. This has gotten way too convicting, so we better move on to something okay. else. Right. Uh, we, we've, we've talked about these, uh, you know, a whole host of voluntary associations that stand mm -hmm. between the market and the state as crucial to a healthy civil society um, and as, as really critical to, um, to the flourishing not only of individuals, but for human beings in general. Mm -hmm. um, so what, what does it take, to I think, to nurture the faithfulness of those uh, and the, the fidelity of those you know, over a longer period of time? Um, I think we need to do a better job at, at, at teaching things like loyalty and fidelity and, and what it means to be uh, in fellowship with people, oftentimes people that aren't all that likable, but we're nonetheless commanded to love them uh, and, and, and to, uh, to be with them. Uh, I've always been impressed by St. Augustine's uh, observation that it is the bonds of imperfection that bind us together. Um, because he knows the frailty of what it means to be human, you know. So how do we care for one another over time? And particularly in the circles that I run in because, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time with, you know, for lack of a better term, just secular humanists and, and people like that. I find myself increasingly want to make the case to say, you know, there's something just inherently good about spending your life with another person. Uh, inherently good about raising children. Inherently good at just of uh, being at, at one another's disposal if you will, and having people make claims upon you um, that I'm not, I don't think being a free-floating nomad is necessarily a good thing. Yeah, those, clearly those connections matter. Yeah. Um, now, you, you found out a little bit more about this personally not that long ago right. when you had a serious illness. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that and sort of what you, what you learned about yeah. these yeah. communities and uh, and sort of this, this koinonia as, aspect of life? Yeah. Well, I learned a lot. I mean, it, basically what, what happened was I ended up being in the hospital for nearly a month. And a lot of that was because of I, I spent about 10 days in ICU and my muscles atrophied and I lost about 40 pounds. So I had to spend, you know, almost three weeks in acute physical rehab and then about five months outpatient rehab. Okay. Well, several things I learned, and this has actually changed how I think about bioethics as well. Um, Thank God for nurses. Um, 
I mean, I have a physician friend, and I wrote to him saying how helpful his book was now that I've been through it, but I said, you doctors are a little bit like Melchizedek. <laughs> you kind of float in from nowhere, spend a few minutes in the room, and then float out. But I said, those nurses are there day in and day out, just taking care of me. I mean, and at first how humiliating it was, but later how grateful I was for these people who literally had to take me to the restroom. Literally, just had to, I was at their mercy and they came through. Now, some people might cynically say, well, yeah, they're paid to. But I think there was more than that. I mean, one nurse we were talking about. I was going to say, they're not paid enough to do that. No, they're not paid enough. If that's, that. if that's the case. Right. Um, one nurse we were talking, she goes, well, you know, the body is both our great blessing and our great curse. And she goes, and my job is to help those where it's become more cursed than blessing. And I thought, there's something just inherently good about that. And I, I think that... That's where it began to, to dawn on me how much I, I depend on other people and how much we need to be called to the caring of one another. That maybe our glory as creatures is our vulnerability, our, our finitude, uh, and eventually our mortality. And uh, that is what binds us together. Which may be one of those reasons why we don't want some of these bioethical or biotechnological enhancements that make, make us live right. a, whole, a whole lot longer. Um, so it sounds sound like you learned a lot about grat not only about dependence and the flip side of that autonomy, mm -hmm. but learned a lot about gratitude oh, yeah. as a result. And you did some things in the aftermath of being of getting out of the hospital that not a lot of people do. Yeah, it was really interesting. I didn't realize what I was doing was so unusual. But um, before I left the hospital, before I was discharged, uh, I had my, and it's really very interesting, this young therapist took a liking to me. She was really young, but she had the exact same name as my daughter. And uh, we kind of st struck up a, a bond there, but I said, I'm, I'm leaving tomorrow. She goes, I know. She goes, can you take me down, help me get to the ICU? I want to thank the people that kept me alive. Because I, I found out later, it's, it's only a 50% survival rate in, in an ICU. And I went down there and thanked him. And then months later, when I was finally getting my, my, my last assessment from the pulmonary people, he said, you don't know what an impact that had. No kidding. Yeah, because he said, nobody comes back. And you know, says, thank you, because number one, they're just so happy to be out there. They don't ever want to go back again. Yeah, I understand that. Yeah. But um, that also accounted for, because I noticed this too, and I mentioned it to the doctor, that the, the nursing and doctoral staff in the ICU they had the professional detachment, the distance. And I realized, well, they had to because they see death every day. But for someone to actually come back and say thank you, they just don't experience that very often. And, and that's where I think, yeah, the, the, the mark of gratitude, just the simple you know, expression of, of what you did for me, it's, it's terribly important and I think uh, you know, neglected. Yeah, I think th those are, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry it took serious illness you know, to bring some of that home. Uh, but I think those are some of the everyday virtues mm -hmm. that I hope you're going to write about mm -hmm. in this forthcoming book. Well, I want to pick up one last thing. Sure. Uh, you spend the last chapter of your book on just capitalism on the phenomena of climate change. And your take on this is not one that's often heard. Um, so I think explain to our listeners... Um, for how, how you understand the climate change debate and what, you know, and what your solution is. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm just not in a position of saying that I either deny it or affirm it. I think, obviously, even if we didn't have human beings, climate does change over time. So, it, 
Uh, now the question becomes, uh, how do you respond to it? And that's, I think, the question that's not, not asked very often because sometimes adaptation may actually prove a better strategy for the poor than, than trying to prevent it. And so the, what's been very helpful for me is to go to the Copenhagen Consensus. And what the Copenhagen Consensus does is about every 10 years they bring together a group of economists and say with X amount of dollars, what would be the best expenditures to help the poor? What's amazing to me is almost never are there any green issues. Really? No, it's things like uh, malaria nets, uh, quit burning dung and wood, in the stoves at home, uh, get electrical grids, get transportation systems. Really basic stuff. Basic stuff, but unglamorous and nobody wants to fund it. It's, it's really what it amounts to. But but crucial. Crucial. And so my, I, I think I'm becoming more and more convinced that to be green means you have to be affluent. You have to be wealthy. That a green strategy is really not a very good strategy for eliminating poverty. So, 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 so what does that say about the, de the developing world? and their obligation to combat climate change. Well, I think what it is basically we have to get them up to a certain level of affluence where they can really afford to make a contribution to becoming green. So so did I, did I, some of the developing world, their pushback on environmental issues and the charge of hypocrisy mm -hmm. to the West actually makes sense in your, in your view. I think it does make sense. So what I would rather see is rather than building a short bridge, because I think eventually you have to get the green technology, but rather than building a, self, uh, a short bridge to that goal, which I think would unduly impact the poor, is build a long bridge and you can shorten it later. So in the meantime, yeah, fossil fuels is good news for the poor. I mean, to be blunt. How so? Because it will enable them to have a cheap source of energy, which will then allow them to build infrastructure, to allow them to build electrical grids, to begin to have a level of economic exchange, which will actually build the affluence. So in other words, cheap and plentiful energy is is a necessary condition for lifting the, yeah. the, the developing world out of poverty. Oh, I think it is, yeah. yeah. Um, and so with and so effort efforts to to cripple the the development and the the, the harvesting of fossil fuels in the near term d accomplishes what for the poor? I think it just keeps them poor. So so would would it be fair to say that in your view? Uh, Efforts to combat climate change that take sort of really drastic, radical steps are consigning the poor to perpetual poverty. Is that, is that an overstatement? Yeah, no, I don't think it is an overstatement. In fact, I've said on some occasions that with uh, friends like that, who needs enemies? <laughs> um, yeah. So it's, uh, I mean, because I think it was Bangladesh where basically the government has made the calculated decisions because they would be drastically influenced by the rising of the seas. They just said basically it would be better for us to move our villages inland than to try to prevent it. And that's, and that's the amazing thing to me is we never really ask the people who would be most directly impacted, what would you prefer? And it's, just, it's just routinely not asked by development agencies. Where, where does your theology inform this? Well, I think I, one of the things that prompted writing the book Does Capitalism is to take seriously the question of preferential option for the poor. But I want to know practically what does that mean? And I think it means if you really want to help the poor, you give them the skills to compete in the markets. That's really exhibiting a preferential option for the poor. Why, why, why don't we hear more discussion about the priority of the poor when it comes to cli combating climate change? Because it's not part of the narrative. Why not? I, I don't understand. I mean, it, it's so much a part of the narrative and lots of other things. Why not here? Yeah, uh, because I think... Um, 
Like I said, I think the, I think green issues are primarily the issue of the affluent, and and not the ones of of, of uh, alleviating poverty. And so the, the the poverty question never gets into the question of what it means to be green. And also, I mean, sometimes it just doesn't take. Um, I remember one time in class, there was a very ardent green student was taking me to task. And I said, finally, I said, okay, so is the problem basically overpopulation? Yes. Okay. I said, well... Um, I can see where this is going. <laughs> and I said, well, how, how many people do we have now? I don't keep up on these things. And she said, oh, I think around seven or eight billion. I said, well, how many can the earth really sustain? She goes, maybe a billion or two. I said, wow. I said, that's a lot of people that got to go... And I said, I'm assuming you've got to do this quickly. Yeah, I said, okay. So I said, tell me, which five billion people are you going to kill? And what's the criteria that you're going to use? And that's what I'm saying is sometimes, I think that what the Green Agenda doesn't realize is, is the amount of tyranny that would have to go along with the prevention. Uh, and that maybe adjustment is, after all, a better strategy for both poor and to preserve uh, freedom. Than, than to go to the preventive route. So, so in other words, it's, it's yeah, a false apocalypse. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so maybe the the emphasis on the developing world, um, that um, wow, that that they actually are demanding rep, you know, some sort of money transfer to enable them to to lift their people out of poverty while being green at the same time might not be so unreasonable. Because the the green revolution is forcing them to make the to make that choice between being green or or being prosperous. Right. Um, and that's that's a choice that the, the developed world in the West did simply did not have to make. Well, and I've had friends from you know underdeveloped countries tell me saying, you know, essentially what you're saying is um, um, just at about the time where you can where we can afford the goodies, you're saying don't don't buy them as bad. That's for you. right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, wow. That, that's, that's a lot to think about. But I think our, what the prophets suggest about this preferential option for the poor, that how, how our decisions impact the, the least among us is to be given priority, um, that says a lot about how we manage climate change. And I think what you've suggested here is a longer launch ramp instead of a shorter one to get to renewable energy right. makes a lot of sense so that we don't cripple and harm the poor at the same time as being environmentally concerned. Right. right. So this, I mean, this has been incredibly stimulating stuff. So Brent, thank you so much for agreeing to do part two on this. I uh, want to recommend the book Just Capitalism. And tell us again the title of, of the book you're working on. Well, just remember the, the, market, the, working, the, mar the marketing the people. Yeah, the marketing people haven't got a hold of it yet. So, uh, but it's right now. It's called uh, "Common Callings and Ordinary Virtues in Praise in the Mundane." Great stuff. So, hey, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a treat to have you with us. Well, thank you for having me. This has been an episode of the podcast "Think Biblically: Conversations on Faith and Culture." To learn more about us and today's guest, Dr. Brent Waters, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash Think Biblically. That's biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. If you've enjoyed today's conversation with Dr. Waters, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything. Thank you.